uh, it was on a, a Saturday morning uh, when I first received the call. I, I knew that it would come uh, eventually. I, I had prepared for it the best I, I could. I had been through school. I had taken all of those pastoral theology and counseling and all of those practicum classes that were, well, they were supposed to prepare you, but when the call came, I remember being more than just a little shaken. You see, it was to be my first funeral. Oh, and it was not just any funeral. I was only 25 years old at the time, and the deceased was a guy I, I worked with. His name was Jimmy. And he was only 18, still in high school, and he'd taken his own life. Now, I know if you've been around for a little while and you've gone to funerals, you know that the age of the person is, is directly, inversely proportional to the size of the, 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 the funeral, right? The younger the person, the more people show up, and the older the person, you know, that's just the way that it works. So I knew that this place would be crowded indeed. It was. His mother, I mean, excuse me, he was from a Catholic family, and his mother, who, who I also worked with, called me in hysterics, asking if I would do the funeral. Now, for centuries, you have to understand that the Catholic Church had taught that suicide was an, it was an unforgivable sin. The great Catholic theologian, he was really a good one, Thomas Aquinas, and he had classified it as a mortal sin that could not be forgiven. You see, it was seen as self-murder, and since there was no way after you committed the act to seek forgiveness, no way to perform penance and receive absolution, that means pardon, then the offender was without hope. And so for centuries, actually, funerals of suicide victims could not even be held in the church. The Catholic Church recently loosened its position on that particular teaching, but the vestiges remain even in Protestant churches. His, his mother asked me, what, what about Jimmy? Can he possibly be in heaven? Had he committed some unpardonable, unforgivable sin? What would you say to Jimmy's mom? In fact, what would you say if an offending party, a sinner came to you like they had me through the years of ministry and said something like, I've committed adultery. Can God possibly forgive me? What would you say? Or I've committed apostasy. For years, I lived away from the Lord, even though I knew what I was doing. I cursed God. I lived apart from Him. I broke His law intentionally. Can God possibly forgive me? I, have I committed some unforgivable sin? And or maybe you say, I've committed murder, not that anyone knows about it, but I had an abortion. I understand that it's wrong. Now I killed my baby. Can God forgive me? You see, I've had people ask me that question. And you have to understand that the church at different times, in addition to suicide, has taught that murder and, and adultery and apostasy were unforgivable sins. There's no hope for you. Is that true? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a bit like John Bunyan, who is actually the author of Pilgrim's Progress, who for years, he actually saw himself beyond the reach of God's grace. For, for years, he, he prayed and, and studied the Bible, and he saw his face, fate as, as worse than that of dogs. What, what did he mean? Well, at least when dogs die, despite popular opinion, that's it for them, but not for me. There's no, uh, there is life after death, and in the life to come, there's no way that God could forgive me. I've gone too far. I've been too 
wicked. I've been too evil. Is that where you've been? Or, or, or maybe you've had this thought, there's no way a Christian, <laughs> there's no way a Christian would sin like I have sinned. So it's too late for me. And maybe you find yourself here this morning, you're just kind of going through the motions. You've actually, if we could peer into your heart of hearts, you've wondered for a very long time, is it possible for God to forgive me? Have I committed some unpardonable sin, whatever that may be? Is there any hope for me? Am I beyond the reach of God's grace? I want to tell you that there's been a lot of wrong teaching on this particular topic. We are going to look at the unpardonable sin today because it is, it is in our text in our continuing study of the gospel uh, of Mark. And I, I just need to tell you right now, this is a difficult text. As I taught through it last service, I felt the weight coming down. I, I even have written here, far from being a message of gloom, I want it to be a word of encouragement for you, and yet I felt the weight of Christ's word descending upon us. But I do want you to be encouraged by the breath of God's amazing grace. I, I, I want you to be encouraged by the very deep love of Jesus for you. Text today is found in Mark chapter 3. Let me remind you of the context. In the first two chapters of this gospel, Mark has been proving that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and that is, that is a very important context for our understanding today. You see, filled by the Holy Spirit at His baptism, He had entered His ministry, filled by the Holy Spirit. And his words and his works were indisputable. He was the one for, for whom the Jews had been waiting. There could be no denying the proof. It was amazing. He was, approving, he was proving by his amazing words and his miraculous works that, that this is it. During his life, he was fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning this expected one, the Messiah, to come. Uh, this, this, is, this is great, but he, he didn't. He didn't fit the profile that the Jews had created for the Messiah. Uh, well, sure, he had fit the biblical qualifications perfectly, but he didn't fit their cultural expectations. He didn't fit their religious expectations. In, in fact, his words and his works had flown in the face of the religious establishment of the day, and they didn't like it one bit, and so they began to actively oppose him. That's what we are seeing in these chapters. In the midst of rising popularity, there is also this rising opposition. And it's, it's actually coming from people you would never expect, right? It's coming from the religious leaders in, in Israel. Are you kidding me? And next week we're going we're gonna to find that opposition actually comes from his family. Really? Maybe like yours. You have to understand that Mark is drawing a very sharp distinction between insiders and, and, and outsiders, those who believe his words and accept his works and, and those who don't. And we're saying many doubt him, criticize him, ignore him, resent him, resist him, reject him. 
A couple of weeks ago, we saw that opposition rise to the level of a conspiracy. After Jesus took them to task on the Sabbath, which was the pinnacle of their very self-righteous system, the Pharisees and the Herodians gathered together to conspire against him as to how they might destroy him. And so the opposition is, is mounting but we're not done. It's obviously going to ultimately climax at, at, the, at the cross, and yet we reach kind of a mini-climax here, a sense in which we arrive at a culmination of rejection. I'm going to suggest that we arrive at, at the biggest no way that the religious establishment could muster. And in the process, when they say no way, Jesus looks at them and says, you have just stepped over a line from which you cannot return. You've committed the unpardonable sin. These are very tough words. Look at them with me. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and following say this. And he, that is Jesus, came home, probably Peter and Andrew's home there in Capernaum. And, and, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent, rising popularity, that they, they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people, those who were his, more literally, heard of this, they, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he's mad. He's lost his senses. He's out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were, were also saying he is possessed by Be Beelzebub and, is, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And, and he, Jesus, called these scribes to himself and began speaking to them in, in parables. In a parable, we typically think of it as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, but it, literally, literally, it's a little bit broader than that. It could be a metaphor, a simile, or something like that. Here, it's just some metaphors. How can Satan cast out Satan? That didn't even make sense. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. That's a parable. Another one, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but he is finished. His end is here. Another parable. Maybe you guys don't quite get what's really going on here. No, no one enters the strong man's house and, and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Maybe that's actually what's happening. Truly, I say to you, and this is the first time that he uses that phrase, and we see it all over the, the gospel narratives. It's an interesting thing that, that Jesus says. In the Old Testament, it thus says the Lord. Here he says, truly, I say to you, this is a self-declaration of deity. Truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin with eternal consequences is the idea. That's troubling. And Mark adds, because they were saying he has a, an unclean spirit. That's very troubling. I just have to tell you. And because I, I, I think of misunderstandings and misrepresentations of the, this text has, as a result, caused more concern, more fear than maybe any other passage in the, in the Bible. When you first look at it, it almost looks like there is this sin, and if you commit it, even if you're sorry for it later, it's too late, you're, you're out. I can remember years ago, this passage used to bother me. This, this was my thinking. You see, I was raised in a rather conservative 
uh, church. And so if some other Christian group or church does something that my pastor didn't like or that I hadn't seen before, if there was some manifestation that I had trouble reconciling with Scripture, then I would listen to my pastor say something like, what we see happening is not in that particular church is not of God, it is of the devil. And I can remember thinking, knowing this text, well, wait just a minute, what if it is? Did you just blaspheme the Holy Spirit? I don't want to, do you want to do that? What is going on here? Is saying a certain set of words the unforgivable sin? Here for you is suicide. Suicide of that person that you knew. Adultery, cursing God, posing His work, falling into egregious sin. Is that unpardonable? Is it possible for a believer to commit this sin, whatever it is, and lose his or her salvation? Have I, let's make it personal, have I stepped over a line? Have I committed a sin that is beyond God's Grace, are you maybe here this morning just going through the motions thinking yourself hopeless and helpless? I hope to answer those questions for you today as we examine the text. It's a heavy one. I'm going to break it up this way. We're going to see Mark's sandwich. You'll understand what I, it's not lunch. We'll see what I mean by that in just a second. We'll see this accusation that is brought against him. Jesus' answer and then he goes on to talk about this unpardonable um, sin. Let's begin briefly with what scholars call Mark's sandwich method. Here's what I mean by that. This is the first of, of several times in his gospel where Mark starts a story and then he diverts to another story with a very similar theme before he comes back to the original story. He starts in verses 20 and 21 telling about how Jesus owned people, those who were his, whatever that means, hearing of his miracles and hearing of his teaching and hearing how everything's getting out of hand going up there, on up there in Capernaum. They went out to get him saying he is, he's out of his mind. He's, he's lost his senses. Now, who are his people? Certainly it could be, I suppose, in the sense of John chapter 1, he, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That is, the Jews, this could be just a group of, of Jews, and he goes on to talk about those as uh, the scribes, but most agree that Mark starts this story of rejection by his own people, interrupts. To, to tell about a rejection by another group of people that you would never expect, that is the religious uh, people, before he finishes the story. And most agree that his own people, those who were his, actually his family. You see, he takes up the rest of the story in this sandwich method in, in verses 31 and following. Look at verse 21 and then read verse 31 without the meat in the middle there. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. The word there is uh, to take custody is used of seizing him, of, uh, uh, of maybe even arresting someone, and for they were saying he has lost his senses, verse 31, then his mother and his brothers arrived. They went out to take custody of him, and then they arrived, his mother and brothers, and standing outside, they went, sent word to him and called him. Here's the point I want you to see. Mark is building this kind of insider-outsider theme. Those on the outside, incredibly... We're his family, and 
the religious. Those on the inside, just as incredibly, were those who were formerly sick and, and, and demon-possessed, the, the sinners and outcasts of society. It's, it's amazing what he, the people that he has assembled to be his followers. And we're going to come back to verses 20 and 21, Lord willing, next week when we pick up the, the rest of the story. But, but at this point, remember, Jesus had been healing people and, and casting out demons everywhere he went. People were coming from every point of the compass. They were coming from all over to be healed and, and delivered. News was spreading rapidly about this guy, and, and, and there could be no denying it. In fact, in a moment, we're going to see that these religious opponents, they don't accuse Jesus of some sleight-of-hand trick. They don't accuse him of, of doing magic. The, the, the truth is there could be no denying his work. So instead of accusing, uh, instead of denying his works, they accuse him of something much more sinister. Now, when Matthew and Luke record this particular story, they do so on the heels of a specific miracle. He had exercised a demon in a man, and that demon caused this man to be both blind and mute. But, but he was no longer after Jesus exercised the demon. He was speaking and, and he was seeing. Here, there's no specific miracle, but we know that Jesus has been casting out demons for some time now. In fact, the very first recorded miracle, remember, in the Gospel of Mark is an exorcism. News had spread. Everyone knew that Jesus was able to heal. Everyone knew that he could exercise demons. This, so that brings us to the second point, the accusation against Jesus. Some scribes, that is, teachers of the law, had come down from Jerusalem. What does that mean? Jerusalem is built on a, on, a, on, a, on a hilltop, a mountaintop. And so when you, go, you leave Jerusalem, you go down. Everyone makes a big deal about that. I don't really know why. But they went north. We would say they went up. But he, they went down, topographically speaking. So they went, they went down, they went north to Galilee, but the fact that they came from Jerusalem is significant. They were likely an official delegation, and they were coming not to check Jesus out, they were coming to confront Jesus. Word had spread to the religious elite right there in Jerusalem, hey, this guy has a movement going on in Galilee, go take him out. Here they accuse Jesus of two things. First, they say that he, is, that he himself was possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul is the Greek form of the Hebrew Baalzebul, which means exalted Baal or Prince Baal. The Jews, I think rightly, saw Baal as nothing less than Satan himself. In, in fact, they often use the word Beelzebub, uh, which means... It, it was a derogatory term. They changed it a little bit. It means Lord of the flies or Lord of the dung. That's what we think of Baal. But it's obvious by the time we get to Jesus' day, when he answers them, it's obvious that it speaks of Satan, this ruler of the demons. Now, again, please notice there's no denying these miracles. In Matthew and Luke, this blind, mute guy was standing in front of them. He's reading the eye chart. He's talking their ears off. So, so how do the Pharisees respond? How do you think they would have responded? I mean, you would think that these scribes would look at that and go, this is really incredible. Praise the Lord. Jesus must be the Christ. He must be the Son of God. Is that what they did? No. They had already called him a drunk. 
That didn't seem to be working. They'd already called him a glutton. That wasn't working. They'd already called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They'd already attacked him for breaking their law, violating the tradition of the elders regarding the Sabbath. That wasn't working. Their backs are against the wall. They had one of two choices. They could give up. Okay, Jesus, we bow. Or they could reach for the biggest gun they could. What do they do? We see their rage reach a, a boiling point. They erupt. They explode. They, they see these miracles. They hear his teaching. He's, he's demonic. He, he is a demon. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. This is the biggest objection, the biggest no that they could muster. Now, remember, all that Jesus was saying, all that he was doing was intended to be indisputable proof of his deity. Here, here's proof. I am who I say that I am. It's undeniable. And these scribes looked at the proof, the irrefutable evidence, and they turned away. That's a key. They, they had heard everything there was to hear. They had seen everything there was to see. And they said, I don't want it. This was full rejection in the face of full revelation. And it placed them beyond the pale of forgiveness. The reason this places you beyond forgiveness is this. There is nothing more. If you choose to harden your heart after you've seen it all, after you've heard it all, that's all there is. There's nothing more. Not only did they turn away, it brought out the worst in them. It brought out slanderous accusations and murderous intent. And I'm going to suggest that that is what Jesus still does today. Jesus still produces either devoted followers or violent opposition. Right? I mean, you, you see people who are either for him or against him. There doesn't seem to be any middle ground. Let me illustrate. Uh, the inauguration of President Bush several years ago, Franklin Graham, our own Franklin Graham, got himself into big trouble. <laughs> you remember what did he do? He prayed in Jesus' name. The media went ballistic. They, they blasted him. And Franklin responded. I agree with his response. You mention the name of Muhammad, and people say, that's okay. You mention the name of Buddha, people say, that's nice. You mention the name of Jesus Christ, and it is a sword that divides a room. No name pol so polarizes a room or, or a setting like the name of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, and it makes me believe more, uh, even more, that this is the Son of God. I agree. This is what the name of Jesus does. Think about it. When the scribes said Jesus is doing what he was doing by the power of Satan, they were acknowledging, again, we've said it, that, these, that his works were supernatural. There could be no denying his miracles either then or now. I know that we have lots of people running around today trying to explain away the miracles. There were too many witnesses. You can't explain them away. We even have people running around, to say, running around today saying that Jesus was not even really a historical figure. Are you kidding me? You've got to make a decision. There's no neutral ground. You either accept his claims or, or reject him altogether, but you must do something with what he did. This is what they did. He's demonic. You've got to decide. You're either an insider or an outsider. There is no neutral ground. Make a decision. Are you with him or for him? 
uh, with him, I should say for him or against him. There's no, not some middle of the ground position that the world and, and frankly the media wants us to take. You Christians, you need to be more tolerant of other religions. You need to accept Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha. Let's just join hands and be one big happy family. Jesus said, no, you can't do that. It's all me or it's nothing. The scribes understood that and they said, I'll take door number two, nothing. You must also choose. Brings us to our third point, Jesus' response, verses 23 to 30. His response can actually be divided into two parts, which form those third and fourth points, but here, here they are. First, he says, your accusation is untenable. It doesn't even make sense. And secondly, your blasphemy, it's unforgivable, the impardonable sin. He starts by saying, what you're saying doesn't make sense. It's ludicrous. It's untenable. He gives them these parables, these metaphors to explain. Any, any kingdom divided against itself is bound for destruction. It, it can't stand a city, a house. It doesn't really matter. If there is internal strife and division, then the thing is going to ultimately collapse, not unlike what we see happening in our nation. So, so, too, if Satan's empire is divided, it's not going to stand. If I buy Satan, cast out his own followers... And I know that I've been doing that all over. Then his kingdom's not going to stand. It's finished. It's self-defeating. He's come to an end. What you were saying, it doesn't even make sense. Will you stop and think about it? And then he goes on to give another a parable. And you have to understand what he's saying. This is not an issue, you see, of a house divided or a kingdom divided. No, he says, this is an issue of the kingdom of God coming against and destroying the kingdom of Satan. You see, if you're going to enter a strong man's house and, and carry off his property, the very first thing you've got to do is bind the strong man of the house. That's what I'm doing. Contrary to your accusation that I'm in league with Satan, casting out demons by Satan, I rather am entering Satan's territory, binding him, who is the strong man, and I am plundering his house. I am bringing good news. I'm bringing good news to the afflicted. I'm binding up the brokenhearted. I'm proclaiming liberty to the captives, freedom to prisoners. I am demonstrating that God's kingdom, power, and authority is greater than Satan himself. I am plundering his house. I am taking those who were formerly his and bringing them into the kingdom of God. Deal with that, people. That's what's actually happening. So your accusation is untenable. But not only is it untenable, the difficult part, your accusation is unforgivable, verses 28 to 30. And here Jesus speaks of a sin which will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. It is an eternal sin, meaning it is a sin with eternal consequences. Now, that's troubling. What is he talking about here? Several questions that we have to answer. What is this sin that never has forgiveness, this so-called unpardonable sin? Another question, can it still be committed today? I think that's a reasonable question. And here, a little bit more troubling, if it can be committed today, can Christians, can Christians commit the unforgivable sin? Let's make it more personal. Can I, have I committed some unpardonable sin 
which means I have lost my eternal salvation and I am on my way to a Christless hell. You ever had that thought? For you? Or a loved one? Let's start with that first one. What is the impardonable sin? The context is incredibly important. Let me tell you first what it is not, okay? Let me just put it on the table, okay? It is not suicide. <laughs> no, nothing in the text talks about suicide. It's not murder, by the way. It's not adultery for that matter. In fact, notice Jesus says, any sin... Any sin shall be forgiven, people. Any sin. Those who, listen to me carefully, those who come to faith in Jesus Christ have been justified. That means that their sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Removed as far as the east is from the west, plunged into the depths of the deepest sea, remembered no more. They have further been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The believer has passed from death to life. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Does this mean that the believer no longer sins? Of course not. Is it, Paul, is it possible for believers, is it possible that some of you have committed egregious sins? Yes. But is there forgiveness? Listen carefully to me. Yes. There is forgiveness. Now, that does not mean that we can live however we want, okay? This is not a license to live how we want. We remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 6. Do we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. We don't do that. But the truth is sometimes Christians sin and sometimes we sin terribly. And yet there is always grace. There is always forgiveness for true followers of Jesus Christ. So. If it is not maybe what we have heard, then what is the unpardonable sin? Here we see it. He tells us that it is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Mark shed some incredibly important light on the subject for us. Jesus says, truly I say to you, I'm God and I am speaking. All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, maybe sins, uh, whatever sins they commit against each other and other, uh, whatever blasphemies against God. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Then he goes on to identify this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark does. Mark says, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Mark says the unpardonable sin um, occurred because they said that Jesus had an unclean spirit, meaning that the works Jesus was doing were being done by, de by a demonic spirit. But we as readers of Mark's gospel remember that Jesus was not filled with the demonic spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and his work was done in the power of the Holy Spirit. From that, we derive this definition of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Here it is. It is attributing to Satan the works of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that doesn't quite get me there. That doesn't help. What, is, what do we do with this? We've got to remember the context. These religious leaders, these scribes and likely Pharisees, they had heard what Jesus had to say. They had seen what Jesus could do. The very miracles he was performing was irrefutable evidence that he was the Christ, the Son of God, but 
despite the truth of his words, despite the power of his miracles, they closed their eyes, they stopped their ears, they clenched their teeth, and they said, no, I refuse to believe it. What you are doing, you are doing by the power of Satan and Jesus. There is no hope for you. I believe this is what the author of Hebrews was talking about in those very difficult passages in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. There he speaks of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, who have tasted of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They had seen it. They were so close they could taste it. They had somehow partaken in the, uh, in the benefits of eternal life. But having seen it, having even tasted it, they said no. And they hardened their hearts to the degree that they will never, ever be redeemed, not in this life nor in the life to come. That's what Jesus says. I want to make this abundantly clear. I believe that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing rejection of who Jesus is and what he came to do. An ongoing rejection of Christ's offer of salvation. The people in question here had seen the miraculous works of Jesus with their own eyes. Any reasonable person would have concluded that God had been working through Jesus. The evidence was unmistakable, but they had seen it and they had rejected it. The person who commits the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is first one who is aware of the miraculous works of Jesus and who, number two, consciously rejects the very logical conclusion conclusion that his works were from God. And number three, believe those works are actually from the devil. You can't deny them. You've got to dismiss them some way. They must be satanic and tell others that Jesus' works were from the devil. One said it this way, surely what Jesus is speaking of here is not an isolated act, but a settled condition of the soul the result of a long history of repeated and willful acts of sin through hardness of heart. It is cosmic unbelief, calculated, wholehearted rejection of Jesus and His message culminating in a vitriolic declaration that Jesus is from the devil. So let me answer a couple of final or a few final questions before we close. First, can a believer commit the unpardonable sin? The answer is unequivocally no. No Christian can commit a sin for which there will be no forgiveness because the truth is they have already been forgiven. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, my brothers and sisters, which sins did he die for? All of them. Past, present, and future. Other scriptures make this crystal clear. Jesus said, truly, truly, I'm God. Mark this down. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has right now eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. You currently have eternal life. And you can trust him for that. 
You see, the, the strength of your salvation is not based on the strength of your faith. It's based on the strength of the one who saved you. How about this question? Can an unbeliever commit the sin and later desire to be saved? Can an unbeliever commit this sin and later desire to be saved? My answer might surprise you, but I believe the answer is no. That's the hard part. Anyone committing this sin is forever hardened in unbelief. I believe there would, ne there, there would never be a time when this person would have any interest in Christ or any desire for salvation or forgiveness. They would not. But the flip side of the coin is also true. If any unbeliever wants to be saved, he or she can be. They have not committed the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. Well, who has? That's the point, not your job. How do I know if someone has committed the unpardonable sin? The answer is, how do I know if I have committed this sin? The answer is this, if you are worried about it, you have not. <laughs> the one who is hardened stays hardened. He doesn't seek forgiveness and he would never believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you believe this morning, listen very carefully to me. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you have asked him to forgive you of your sins, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, that he was ascended to the Father, that he's at the Father's right hand, if you believe all of that and you have received that for yourself, then you cannot and you will not commit this sin. Hallelujah. Let me say a couple more things before we close. Now you know why. We'd sing just a few songs and why you need to come back tonight. Many of you are not so much concerned about yourself. You, you know Jesus as your Savior. You know that your sins are forgiven. What about mom? What about dad? What about that son or daughter? What about that friend or loved one who has violently and vehemently denied Christ? Is it too late for them? Have they committed this sin? Let me say this. Jesus is the only one who ever talked about the unpardonable sin. He's the only one who ever told someone, you just went too far. And Jesus is God. And the ultimate judgment of the soul belongs to God alone. It does not belong to you. It does not belong to me. Has your loved one or your friend gone too far? I don't know, and neither do you. Only God knows. So you keep praying, you keep trusting, you keep sharing, and you trust their eternal salvation to the only one who can do anything about it anyway. So as we close, what do we take from this message? I trust, I hope, I doubt, much encouragement. <laughs> For from this passage, from this, far from this being a passage that breeds fear and concern, it should be one that brings comfort and hope. 
I do not have to wonder or worry if I've committed the unforgivable sin. Jesus said every sin is forgivable. Every sin is within the reach of God's grace except this one, which I am defining as a total denial of who Jesus is and what he has done, a complete hardening of the heart to the gospel. If I am confessing Jesus to be my Savior, I do not have to worry about whether or not I've said or done something unforgivable. I have not. And I don't have to worry or wonder if some loved one has committed the unpardonable sin because they have committed some egregious sin that some people have wrongly identified as the unpardonable sin. Here, listen to me, I close with this. Here Jesus says, every sin is pardonable because Jesus' love is deep, His grace is amazing, His favor is unmerited, His forgiveness unbounded. Hallelujah. Let's stand for prayer.